morning. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are studying through the book of Ephesians. And as we're studying through it, uh, we have come up to the middle of chapter 2, starting at verse 11. So if you have one, uh, you can open it up there. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. There's one of these blue and white ones. You can take that for free. It's all yours. If you have one and you just want to take one to give away, take that and give it away to somebody. Uh, we buy those so that you'll take them and give them out as gifts. So please feel free to do that. At Remedy, whenever we read the text before we start the sermon, we always stand. So if you're able, I'd love for you to be able to stand with me. And we'll read starting at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 22. <clears throat> verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, I'm sorry, might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and preached peace to who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would use it this morning uh, and that you would amaze us with what we just read, that we would be astounded at the amazing truths that are here. We pray that the corporate applications that are possible for us to make uh, would be seen and understood and readily accessible and uh, readily desirable in our own hearts. This is truly Maybe one of the most amazing texts as we study through the book of Ephesians that we'll see. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, this section is very similar to the previous section. So, in the previous section, if you were here last week, uh, and and really, as we're looking at chapters 1 through 3, Paul's doing something as he's going through these chapters 1 through 3. I actually have, go ahead and put up the, uh, the outline of the whole book. He's doing something as we're going through the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3, he's, he's telling us who we are over and over. So before he gets to tell us what we need to do, he's over and over to tell us who we are. Our position in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. Our new life in Christ, the new community in Christ, which is what we're starting today. But over and over he's using these same kind of uh, thoughts where he's, before he's going to even get to applications where this is how we live, etc. Over and over he's telling us who we are. You need to know who you are in Christ before you can... Start living. So if we looked at last week, if you were here, uh, he used this, this pattern of telling you who you are, what Christ has done, and now who we are. And, and in the same kind of pattern, he's going to do that in 2, 11 through 22. He's going to tell us who we were, what Christ has done, and who we are now. But here's the, here's the catch. Um, in verses 1 through 10, it was intended for us to think in very much when you say you, this is who you are, in an individualistic kind of sense. Whenever we look at you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you once walked in the course of power of the air, that we were devil worshippers, but God saved us, etc. This is the individualistic way that we can think about how we were saved. It was very much a, uh, the gospel on, on how individuals get saved. But 11 through 22, while it's that same format, who you are, what Christ has done, uh, and, and who we are now, it's not intended to be thought of in an individualistic level. It's in, only intended to be thought of in a corporate level. This is who we are. This is who we once were. This is what Christ has done for us. This is who we are now. 
So whenever we see the word we, don't think of Christian conversion in, the ten, in terms of the individual. The entire time we're looking at, uh, at verse 11. So remember that once you, so anytime you see you as good Southerners, we just all are going to say plural, y'all. This is all y'alls. This is, Paul's intending us for the entire time that we look at this text to, to breathe in the corporate implications and applications of us and, and exhale them out into, into uh, living it out. So don't think of this as how you were saved, but in terms of, uh, and purposely in terms of what this means now, not individually of how you can be saved, but what this means now in terms of being a Christian community. A Christian community. So this is, this is the gospel not to an individual, this is the gospel to a society. This is the gospel to a good news community and what it means. So as we're looking at verses 11 through 22, there are similar things and similar kind of uh, sounds and thoughts and, and, and uh, things that we saw from last week in verses 1 through 10. But it's different for sure because he's talking about uh, corporate nature. Now, um, as we go into verses 11 through 22, I want to do my best to try to help us understand what's going on and, and the sovereign hand of God brought it around at the perfect time. So if you're aware and you live in the South, you know that this is rivalry week. You know, it's Gamecocks, Clemson, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Auburn, Alabama. Maybe your team won yesterday. I'm happy for you, unless you're Clemson fans. Um, but we, like, we're familiar with rivalries. There's rivalries everywhere. Coke, Pepsi, Harry Potter, Voldemort, Star Wars, Star Trek. Maybe you have one of those that's very good. Uh, Mac, PC, right, iPhone, or whoever tries to compete with them, whatever, I don't know what's after that. But, but there's rivalries, my whole point is, right, there's, there's I, rivalries everywhere, and we're totally aware of these rivalries. And they've been around not just in our century, they've been around a long time. And Paul, in this particular text, is describing, as we look at this, a very, very deep, complex rivalry. Um, this rivalry that's been uh, brewing and going on for, for centuries between the Jews and the Gentiles, this hostile rivalry had the, kind of the controversial trifecta. It had religion, culture, and race. And so all three of those things boiling up here, this made this very quite difficult to, un, to overcome. All three of those. I mean, just imagine coming, overcoming one of those in today's society is difficult. Imagine... Just If we just took religion, Muslims and Jews trying to get along in the Middle East. Seems very difficult, right? This one, Jews and Gentiles, had the, the trifecta. If we, think about, uh, if we think about the historic South, we think about race. Imagine still now, we still have ongoing disputes between blacks and whites. Where some get along, but overall there's still work to be done. Or if we just think about culture, even in our own country, as we think about North and South. Um, there's still differences that we, we don't necessarily over, overcome. Uh, that, that we, th- there's, there's strides forward, but not fully. And this particular relationship between Jews and Gentiles has all three mixed in together. It has religion, it has culture, and it has race. And so the, the overcoming of all three of those together is unbelievably difficult. It's, it's in our senses, in our human senses, basically in- insurmountable. It's insurmountable. And so in this text... Paul's going to help us explain to us how actually those three things all together at once have actually been overcome and only overcome by one thing. And the only thing that has the power to overcome these things, the gospel. The good news of Jesus literally overcame all three of those things. And just as we live in our own life, we can just overcoming one of those things is so difficult. Even as we preach the gospel faithfully in this city, we see that it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And here... Paul's wanting us to understand that all three of these things have been overcome by Jesus uh, being, willingly, uh, being willing to go to the cross. And so what he's going to try to explain to them is to these Jews and Gentiles who were huge rivals. Bigger rivals than anything that you can think of. Um, they are now supposed to live as one. So at, before we get to the good news, as is his kind of uh, pattern... Let's look at what he r- describes as the bad news or who we once were. So number one, number one, you can go ahead and put up the, the first number one. So what we're looking at is the gospel for a good news community. Remember this, we're, we're intended to hear the good news here, not in an individualistic sense, but in a corporate sense. He wants everybody to think about the corporate implications of the gospel. We've looked at the salvific implications on the individual. Now we're looking at the corporate aspect. So this is who you once were. Now you can look at verse 11, remember that... Uh, at one time, you 
Gentiles. So he's, he's clearly writing to those uh, who are Gentiles. He's writing to Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, if you remember our map, I don't have it today. I, w- I really wish I would have. But Jerusalem's really far south, and, and several hundred miles north is where you get to modern-day Turkey and Ephesus. And so this is Gentile land. And so Paul, as he's writing there uh, in this particular, I mean, he's writing to the Ephesians, but he's, he's calling out the Gentiles for sure. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now, that's the, that was their nickname. They were, in a derogatory sense, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, I know that seems weird. Like, that's, that's a kind of a weird nickname, the uncircumcision. How do you even know? I don't even want to get into that process of figuring that out. But somehow, like, they knew that they were the uncircumcision. Obviously, racial lines help, can help understand that. But even if they were the same race and they weren't, like, how do you, how do you know? Like, is there a checker? I don't know. It seems weird. But like the whole point is they, they derogatorily called them this nickname, the uncircumcision. And the Gentiles were supposed to like be offended by it. I'm this uncircumcised. Okay. Uh, so he's trying to help them understand that there was a, a rivalry between the two. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... You had this nickname, the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision. So you Gentiles, you, the Gen- Jews called you this, uh, which is made by the hands. Remember that you, at that time, se- were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So this is who you were before that Gentiles. Now, the Jews certainly had their problems. I mean, if you read the Old Testament... They certainly had their problems. They didn't follow God the way that they should. No doubt about it. But there's one thing that we can say about the Jews in the Old Testament. They were still the Lord's people. They were Yahweh's chosen people, right? The Gentiles were not. And so he's helping them understand. He, he paints the very bleak picture for them to help them understand just who they were. Now, I want us to do our best. Uh, and it might be difficult for us as we do this, especially um, for guys like me who live in a majority culture, and I'm Southern, and I live in the South, and so I've never, ever had to feel like the outsider. I've never had to, whenever I read text, feel like, oh, yeah, I can really identify that as an outsider. Because where I live uh, in the South, as a white guy, in a majority culture, I always am kind of not an outsider, but an insider. I always, I feel like that. So I want us to all do our best whenever we read this, to read it as the outsider. Some of us can read it as the outsider, identify as the outsider, and it's no big deal for us. But Paul's warning us, because we're all Gentiles likely, to read this as the outsider, to feel what it means to be the outsider, not the insider. So this is what he says. You were, remember at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope to what it uh, means to be, having no hope and without God in the world. So as he's writing to us, he wants us to see three things. Three things. One, that we were Christless. Read this as the outsider. Don't just feel like, I've always been a Christian. I went to the Baptist church since I was three, and I'm white, and I'm Southern, and so I'm just part of it. Like, like pull yourself out and feel the weight of what it means to be on the outside. He says this. Remember that at time you were separated from Christ. We were at one point separated. This was tragic to not be recipients of the good news of the Messiah. So we were Christless. At the same time, it says after that, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. We were foreigners. Paul's explaining to these Gentile Ephesians that they were also excluded from citizenship of Israel. Citizenship of Israel. They were a foreigner. They were in a foreign land and they weren't part of the covenants. They didn't know and they didn't understand and nor were they parts of the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel, David. These things were not concepts they understood nor were they even included in on it. If they even understood it, you're still out there. Now, this week I've been, or this week, this last two months really, uh, we've been working at the building and so I've had to deal with guys that are that are building stuff at our, at our, at our, at our church. And there's, there's just already for us a, a common barrier, which is language. And so when I'm trying to describe, you know, like, hey, this, uh, this thing right here needs to be fixed. And I'm getting my Google Translator out and I'm like trying to type it in. Like, see that word? Like, that's, that's what we need. I can already kind of, even in just the sense trying to communicate, hey, that light should not be above the ceiling. It actually should be shining down into the room. Um, <laughs> like, explaining these things in Spanish is not easy, Right? And so I can already feel a sense of 
what it must have been like for them, not only language barriers, but, but they're actually excluded from being a citizen in this particular uh, commonwealth of Israel. Not only that, not only were they Christless, not only were they foreigners, so they didn't know what it meant to be like to even be a citizen. They were also hopeless and godless. That's what it says. Having no hope and without God in the world. This means that while God did promise, as he promised to Abraham, to bless all the nations in the world, he promised that even through Israel, he would bless all the nations of the world into the Gentiles. So if they were just, uh, in, in the Old Testament, if Gentiles or pagans would be close to the people of Israel, they would see a good moral compass. And as God blessed them and blessed their land and made them rich and made them wealthy, that they would kind of be backdoor recipients of those things. They didn't know that they were they didn't know Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So they didn't know that they were actually going to be blessed through the people of Israel. So they were hopeless. They had no hope even though they still would be blessed. Uh, the nations would be blessed. So not only that, were they hopeless. Um, they were hopeless because they also didn't know God. They were godless. And so this was the description that was given to these particular Gentiles before, as outsiders before they came in. They were Christless. They were foreigners. And they were hopeless and godless. And all of us once were separated from Christ. And all of us once were separated. Don't just miss it. Don't just just stop at Christ. This is important. All of us also were once separated from a Christian community. And it's important to realize that when we're invited into Christ, that's good news. Like we are saved forever. But we're also invited into a Christian community. And we must value that as well. Now... Stott says it this way as he summarizes. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That's who we were beforehand. We were alienated. We want to do our best to import our minds into the first century as Gentiles and feel just how hopeless that was. Now, when we can realize that, and then this unbelievable invitation into being part of the family of God comes to us, then it should just absolutely astonish us. So after verses 11 through 12, after he paints this very bleak picture, he goes to verse 13. But now. Now I said verse 2-4 was the biggest but in the Bible last week. But this but's pretty big too. Um, I wouldn't say it's the second. There's probably a a pretty big one. But this is a pretty big one. But now in Christ Jesus. That's just B-U-T, y'all. Come on. Pull your heads out the gutter. But now, B-U-T, but now in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm a mess. But now, this is our last day here, y'all. We got five different kinds of chairs, and we're going to have one style of chair next week, right? We got five different colors here. But here's the thing. I was just thinking about this on the way up. We got to stay a five different kind of chair kind of people. You know what I mean? Like, we don't need to, like, uh, be all like, look at us with one color chair. Let's just always be humble. Anyway, back to this. But now, I know, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off. This, 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 this statement in verse 13 is the thing that um, Paul's trying to, as he just painted the bleak picture, this is the most beautiful sentence that could be said to them. After he just painted the worst, I mean, verses 1 through 3, he painted the worst of all scenarios. In verse 4 he says, but God being rich in mercy... It's the same weight of it here. He just painted the worst picture and he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the, by the blood of Christ. Christ was willing for his body to be ripped apart on the cross so that you don't have to be Christless. So that you don't have to be hopeless or godless or a foreigner. You're invited into all these things now. Not just into Christ, but into a Christian community. So this is, I mean, this is an amazing, amazing statement. If, if your favorite verse, if you're picking a favorite verse of 11 through 22, 13 ranks pretty high. 13 ranks pretty high. But now, Gentiles, you were amazingly far off. You weren't just like down the road at Selenese. You were like in California. And you've been brought near. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We need to let it sink in. I just painted that rivalry picture. Jesus' blood, his willingness to be ripped apart on the cross, ended bigotry, ended cultural religious bigotry, ended cultural religious uh, 
cultural bigotry. It ended racial bigotry. His cross, his willingness to be uh, the propitiation for our sins, the wrath bearer, ends these things. And it does it today. It ends the religious bigotry. It ends the cultural bigotry. It ends racial bigotry. This is absolutely remarkable. And this is what he's telling to them. Now, the first application is Jew-Gentile. I know we live in America, and it's easy for us to try to import that into our society right away. That's not the meaning of the text. That's an application of the text. The meaning of the text is Jews-Gentiles, not whites and blacks. But that's certainly an application we can make. Certainly is an application we can make. The meaning of the text is the pagans coming into Christianity. It's not Muslims and Jews or Muslims and Christians. That's an application, but the meaning is this. But nevertheless, it is a remarkable application that we can make. And so as he tells us in verse 13 what Christ has done, after that, in verses 14 through 18, he explains what Christ has done. He tells us what Christ has done in verse 13, that he has, by his willingness to go to the cross, has brought you who are once far off, brought you near by the blood of Christ. And then verses 14 through 18, he gives four specific outcomes of Jesus' blood. In 14, he, I just wrote explanation of what Christ has done. I've tried not to kill y'all with subpoints uh, as we're going through Ephesians. But in 14 through 18, there's, there's four specific outcomes. And you can see them. They're, I mean, they're right. They're obvious right there. For he himself is our peace. The first outcome is that Jesus, not only has he brought us peace, Jesus is our peace. You see that? Not only has he brought us peace, for he himself is our peace. So he has brought us peace but he is our peace we're coming together because he brought us together and then he's the thing that actually unites us and brings us together in in peace we have now peace with God and peace with with each other this means that the gospel really does solve every single dispute every single dispute whether in your family or with your friends or in our nation or in the entire world the gospel really is, it seems so simple-minded just to say the gospel's the answer. And in, in one way, yeah, sure, okay, that's simple. But it's massively complex and it's totally true. The gospel really does solve every single dispute. And Jesus is, not only brings peace, but he is our peace. There's another thing it does. Verse 14, Jesus is, this four, four specific outcomes that Jesus' blood brings one's that he's our, Jesus that brought us peace. The second one is that Jesus has made us one. This is, this is so revolutionary. Watch this. Uh, this is 14 through 16. This is what he says. Um, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this is how he has made us one. By the way, there was a literal dividing wall. <laughs> like a literal dividing wall. There was a, in the temple, a wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, the Gent- that Gentiles were not allowed to go past. And they, that wall was literally broken down when Christ died on the cross. And now everybody has access. Everybody has access. So it's not a, a figurative wall of hostility between the two, but a literal. He has, in his flesh, broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create. So let me, let me explain the, by abolishing the law and commandments of ordinances. There were laws and ordinances that the Jews had to keep in order to be a, a good Jew that Gentiles did not keep, which kept them out of community. So Gentiles couldn't be in this community because they ate bacon and whatever. They broke all the laws, right? And so they literally couldn't be together because they had to follow the rules. Like, I... Even if I wanted to be with you, I have to follow these rules. And so these rules have to actually be gone in order for us to hang out together because I'm not even allowed to be around you. If I touch you, I get your, 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 your dirtiness, right? And so Christ has actually broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands and ordinances, eliminating those things so that they can actually be, remember this is all about corporate, so they can be together now in a corporate sense. He abolished those things that they can be together now. That he might create in himself one new man. If you underline it, Jesus is okay with it. Underline one new man. Like that's, that's amazing. I'm going to come back to that in a second. In place of the two. In place of the two. One new man in place of the two. I'm going to, I'm going to come back and try to explain that. 
the best I can in our minds, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body. One body, one new man, one body. In place of the two, one body. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. So I want us to feel the, the full weight of revolutionary speak that Paul is using when he says that in place of the two, one new man. Imagine if we could get into a time machine and travel back in time. We can go with Bill and Ted, whoever you want. All the time travel movies. We can go with Bill and Ted. Excellent. I'm dating myself. All right. That's fine. He went to see Socrates. Y'all remember that? All right, whatever. So uh, he didn't know how to say Socrates. All right, so anyway, I'm sorry. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, probably not a good movie. I haven't seen it in 20 years, but maybe one of you have. All right, so anyway, imagine we can go back in time. And if we go back in time, we go to early 1800s or so. And as we're going there, I want you to imagine in the South, walking up to a white person in the early 1800s, where there is massive peace, I mean, massive uh, rivalry between whites and blacks at this particular time. Uh, going up to a white person and saying, uh, the two of you, you, this white person, you, this black people, are going to combine together to become a new man. Imagine doing that in the 1800s. The superiority that the white person felt and the hatred that the black person felt against them. Looking at both of them and say, you're no longer going to be white anymore. And you're no longer going to be black anymore. It says, leaving the two behind, you're going to be one new person. In place of the two, one new man. Imagine telling them, you're not going to retain those same characteristics of who you were. Instead, you're going to be combined together in one new man. And so now, you literally have no reason to be prejudiced against one another. Because you're no longer going to be those two other men, but you're going to be one new man now. Imagine telling them, that that's what it, the way it's going to be. They'd be like, what? No, uh-uh. Both of them likely. One would feel superior. One would just probably feel angry. That doesn't sound right. Imagine saying that. In the same kind of sense, this is what Paul is telling them. You're no longer going to be separated into two people anymore. Instead, Paul just told them, you're no longer going to be Jews. And you're no longer going to be Gentiles. You're no longer going to retain any of those characteristics. You're going to be something together all new now. The church. No longer Jews, no longer Gentiles, but the church. One new man. And Jesus has done this. Jesus has made us the church. So the second thing that Jesus' blood has done is he brought us peace, but he made us one. That's, that's revolutionary. That's so hard to wrap around our mind around because even still today we live with factions. The next thing that Jesus did is he preached peace. He brought peace, but he also preached peace. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off. And he preached peace to use those who are near. Now, when we read that, it's easy for us to understand the first half of the sentence. If somebody's far off, they're real far away from Jesus. They need to be preached the gospel so that they can come to know Christ. So they don't, not far off, but they're near. But the second half... And he preached peace to those who were near. Huh? If they're here, why do they need to be preached to if they're already here? Well, think of it this way. You probably know where I'm going. He preached to those who are far off, those who are Gentiles, those who are pagans, those who are licentious, those who are wretched, wretched sinners. Uh, and it was obvious to everybody they need the gospel. But he also preached to those who were near, those who were Jewish, but they were religious. They, they followed the law, and they thought by law-keeping, they had a right relationship with God. And either way, neither one of them are going to heaven. Both need the gospel. It's not reckless living or rule-following that gets you to heaven. It's faith in Christ, because both of them need the gospel. Both of them need the gospel. One commentator told a story of a conversion of this 19-year-old that lived in Cambridge in 1700s. Late 1700s, he had no mother, no mother uh, alive at the time. Of course, he had a mother. Uh, and he had no father that was, we had a father too, but his father was an unbeliever. And his father just sent him off to Cambridge. Uh, he's 19 at the time, and he was sent to this uh, commentary, said, godless and corrupt place, Cambridge, that even after his conversion, it took him three years to find a Christian. It took him three years. And he, he, t- he writes of his conversion at one particular time. His name's Charles Simeon. This is what he said. In Passion Week... When I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did 
when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. They believed that that, that happened. You know, it was in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord taught them. They thought, the thought came into my mind then, what may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering me for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And on the Wednesday, began to have a hope of mercy. And on Thursday, that hope increased. And on Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, April 4, I awoke early with those words upon my hearts and lips. Christ Jesus is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. And he realized, like these particular people realized, that all of his sin was put on the head of Christ for us. And if you trust in Christ because he's preached the gospel to us, we can be saved. And so he came, Jesus says in verse 17, and he preached Christ to those who were far off and those who were near. And so wherever you are today, if you, if you grew up reckless, if you grew up far from God, you didn't go to church, etc., Christ is for you. All your sins can be laid, have been laid on the head of Christ if you, if you believe today. And if you grew up in the church thinking that just because I went to church and kept the rules that I have a right relationship with God and he's so happy with me, then you need Christ as well. Christ, all that sin of thinking that you are so awesome instead of living for Christ, all that can be laid on Christ's head if you trust in Jesus today. You can be a believer. And so the third outcome that we see is that Jesus preached peace to us. Now, the second thing is, as we're looking at Jesus preach peace, the first thing I want us to notice is that he preached peace to both people, Jews and Gentiles. But this is just a, a second thing, that, real fast, in verse 17 When he came, he preached. He didn't just preach peace to everybody that needed it. But before he even got to that, he preached. He proclaimed the good news. And so since we are his people, we should do the same thing. We should willingly proclaim the gospel like our uh, Savior Jesus to those who are far off and to those who are near. To those who are licentious and to those who are legalists. And love them in the exact same way Christ did. So, we're looking at three things as we're looking at this explanation of what Christ has done. The four specific outcomes of Jesus' blood. He brought peace. He's made us one. He preached peace. And the last thing is that he gives us access to God. He gives us access to God. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the, uh, the, the Trinity all in one verse. For in Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Because of Christ dying for us, the Holy Spirit provides the way for us to have access to the Father. Jesus gives us access to God. Now, I want to talk about this access in two complex, magnificent ways. One is the access we have in prayer. We have confidence now because of this, to draw near to the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4.16 says. We have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace through prayer, and we can receive mercy, and we can find grace in our time of need. That he will give us help in our time of need. We have access to God. Think about this, Christian. Full access to God because of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Full access. I I, I think I've told this story before. My seminary professor, uh, he was pretty busy. And he, he said that he had this, you know, the secretary out front kind of area. And he had, this, he had this room that was his, his own little office. And he would be behind his desk. And when people would come up like me, have questions, the secretary's job was to stop us, you know, like, because he had stuff to do. You know, it was important. He had to write books and grade papers or read or whatever he was doing. Um, and so, like, getting to him was always tough. The secretary was the buffer, right? And so maybe you can get in there and see him. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Um, wasn't very often. But the whole point of that secretary was to keep us. We, we didn't have access to him. But he said one day, but if my child comes up, the child doesn't even think of the secretary, right? The child just opens, like, hey, just walks up, walks in the door. Hey, dad, walks in, doesn't care what the dad's doing, just walks right up and sits right in his lap. And there he is. Doesn't care about any of the, the barriers that are there. I won't fall. Doesn't care about any of the barriers. And in the same childlike way, 
This is the access we have through Christ. Through prayer, we can find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. No barriers whatsoever. Full access to the God the Father. Just like a child, you can walk right up to his lap. That's the first kind of access. In prayer. But there's a second kind of more complex, magnificent thing I want to talk about as well. We have access to God. Just in a big picture sense, we have access to God. Now, there's a book called God is the Gospel by John Piper, where he says, he makes this uh, really important point about the good news. That the gospel isn't primarily the fact that you get forgiveness of sin, or relief of guilt, or escape from hell, or any of those kinds of things. It, it, those are good things, and that's, those are kind of byproducts of the gospel. But the best news of the gospel isn't that you feel that you're, you're feeling bad relieved. The best news about the gospel is that you get God. God is the good news for you. That you get God. You get to know God. You get to be his child. You get to enjoy God forever. That's what he says. And he asks this devastating, devastating, I'm struggling with words, devastating question. Devastating question. Devastating question. Anyway, um, I don't even know what I was trying to say there. But this is what he says. And this is, this is so pinpoint into our hearts, the question. The critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have, if you could have heaven with no sickness, all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, no human conflict or any disasters, and could, be, could you be totally satisfied with this heaven if Christ was not there? That's the whole point that he's saying. You have access to God. And if if it's yes to any of those gifts, then we're idolaters. Jesus gives us access to God himself. And that's the greatest news of the gospel. That we get God. So the fourth outcome of Jesus' blood is that he gives us access to God. Now, as we look at verse 19, you can see the so then, the transition words, as he brings us into our third section. So the third section is this. Who we have become now. Now he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. So, so then, you Jews and Gentiles, now you're unified. Now you're unified. This is who you are now. This is whom we have become. I probably should say whom. Whom we have now become. Notice the words that he tries to use. The the language that he's trying to employ, that they're together. He uses that we're fellow citizens that you're with the saints, that you're members of the same household. He's, he's using language to try to see, help you see that you're together now, that you're fellow members, you're with one another, you're members of the same household. Uh, and as he does this, in verses 19 and following, he has three illustrations to paint this picture. Let's read verse 19 and following. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you... Gentiles are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together. That's amazing. Jews and Gentiles being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so as he tries to help us to understand that we're now unified, this is, this is whom we have become, he uses these three illustrations to explain this to us. One, that we're part of God's kingdom. They're all now citizens together. This isn't their land, and this isn't your land. It's our kingdom. We're all part of the same kingdom. And so Jesus runs the kingdom. And Jesus has said, everybody now is an equal part of this kingdom. We're all citizens here. So this This statement when he says that we're all fellow citizens, this destroys tribalism. This destroys teams. This destroys factions and cliques and rivalries. All those things break down. Those things should never be present in the church. There's no hashtag team anything. We're all same team. Sorry I used a hashtag. I shouldn't speak in hashtag language. That's, That's out of control. So, like, the whole point is no one should ever negatively feel vulnerable in God's kingdom. We're all part of the same kingdom. No factions, no cliques, no rivals, no, no tribalism here. We're all part of God's kingdom. And on top of that, we're all part of God's family. We're members of the same household. Now, 
for the Jew to hear this, it probably uh, wasn't a huge thing. They already were, in their minds, members of God's household. But they had to hear that Gentiles are now part of the household too. And had to learn to accept that and realize that that's real. And as a Gentile, they got to hear, you're now a member of the household. That's, that's a world-changing difference for them too. And he tells them that you're both now part of the same family. This is a very stunning, striking thing for these readers to hear. They're all now, and they have to stomach this, part of the same kingdom. And now... Not just part of the same kingdom. Like, you don't all live in the same neighborhood and at night you can go back to your house, Jews and Gentiles, and be together. No, no. You're part of the same family. At night you go to the same house. You're not just part of the same kingdom. You're part of the same family. You go to the same house and you're going to see each other tonight. You're going to eat dinner with each other tonight. And you're going to go to bed and you're going to see each other with your bed head in the morning. Like now you are together in the same family. Not just in the same neighborhood. Not just in the same kingdom but in the same house together, same family. And we all have the same dad. In our house, there's no tribes allowed because we all have the same last name. We're all chambers. We're all the same team. We're all the same family. And that's what he's telling them. Now, you're not just in the same kingdom and at nighttime you can retreat to your little tribes, but you're actually part of the same family. And you all should realize you're part of the same house. Tony Marita uh, warns us whenever we think about not living as the church as a family. The church is a family. And he says this, be careful not to treat the church as a hotel. Visiting a place occasionally, giving a tip if you're served well. Rather, see the church as a part of your Christian identity. Understand that we all have a role in God's household. That we are all now part of the same family. Same uh, kingdom, same family, and we're also part of God's temple together. Verses 20 through 22. Being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, talking about God's temple, being joined together, joined, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There it is. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, as he's talking about the temple, he gives the foundation and the cornerstone. The foundation is God's word. The foundation built on, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the foundation is God's word. But the cornerstone is Jesus. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's God's word. Christ himself being the cornerstone. So this is why we at Remedy Church believe that uh, it's important to have the correct preaching of God's word is so crucial. The church rises and falls on the faithful preaching of God's word. It's our foundation. But more so... And, and uh, even more important, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. This means that he makes the whole building possible. There is nothing without Jesus. He is the, the only hope we have. So as he's telling us that we're God's temple, the foundation being his word and the cornerstone being Christ, then he starts helping us understand uh, in some sense that we're part of this building as well. Different little rocks being put together. Jew-Gentile, Jew-Gentile, Jew-Gentile. Put them all all together. And here we are building ourselves up into God's temple, joining us together. You can actually, uh, as you see this word in verse 21, in him the whole structure being joined together. This is the Greek word legos. It's where we get the word lego. From. Kids, just paid attention. Yes, Legos, yes. Spider-Man, or not Spider-Man, Star Wars Legos. They're only like, you know, insanely expensive. They must have gold in them because they're like $1,000 for Millennium Falcon. Anyway, back to this. Like, the whole point he's trying to say is like, we can understand this, but being joined together, they're literally joining together as Jews and Gentiles, growing together into a holy temple in the Lord, that they're being built up into it, a place not only that they are now together, uh, as Jew and Gentile coinciding together in this Christian community church. But the best news, as it says in verse, into verse 22, that this is the dwelling place for God now. They're not just coinciding as a Christian community, but God literally resides in there, holding them together as a Christian community. So this is God's dwelling place. So as we see in this last three things that we've become unified, we're God's uh, kingdom, we're God's family, and we're God's temple. All of us together. So I want to conclude with a couple uh, applications for us. A couple, I think, key applications for us. They're different, but they both apply to the text. The first application I want us to make is that we all need to increase 
our value and our concept of the local church. What he's trying to help us understand is that we're all part of a new community. A new community. And so since that's the case, and he's telling us very much so that you're joined together in ways that you can barely even conceive, but amazingly, truthfully, beautiful. We need to revalue and increase our value of the concept and, uh, of the local church. I'm not saying you have a low concept of the local church. I'm not saying you don't love the church. I'm saying we all need to increase our value and concept for the local church. Jesus does not want isolated individuals in a church, barely here, barely knowing each other. He wants multicultural, multi-ethnic families to come together and treat each other as families. And also, he wants us together a lot. Think of how much you see the people in your house. How, much, how often do you see the people that live in your home? Hopefully you're saying every day. He wants you to think of your church family in the same way. He wants you together. He doesn't want you together once or twice a week. He wants you together a lot. So that you, when you're together with just somebody once or twice a week, you barely notice their, their weirdness. And if you do, you're like, ah, I'm not going to see them for an hour. I can just bypass it, right? But if you're together a whole lot, you see their weirdness and you have a decision to make. Forget them, I'm never hanging out with them again. Or we're going to learn to get together with our weirdness and go past that and really grow deep together. That's what he wants in this, in this church. He wants us to get together, see our weird quirks, decide that that's not going to be the big deal that, that breaks it up, move past that and grow deeper together. That's what I mean by increasing our value and concept of the local church. He wants us together and he wants us together a lot. Because he, the church is a family. And families should be together every day. I know that in our transient society you can't be together every day. But nevertheless, we need to be together as much as possible. Tony Marita quibs this way. Avoid being a ninja Christian. Slipping into a worship service and then leaving without a trace. That's funny. Be a family member instead. Be a family member instead. So the first thing that we must do is value, increase our value and increase our concept of the local church. The best way that you can do that at Remedy is being in a community group and hanging out with your community group as much as you can. Going to their kids' sporting events. You go, they come to your kids' sporting events. Getting ice cream together. I don't know. Whatever y'all like to do, right? Be together a lot. That's the first conclusion we can draw is let's value what it means to be the local body. The second thing that we can draw from this is this. Um... We must celebrate differences, for sure. But at the same time, <clears throat> don't forget what he says in verse 15. That we're one new man in place of the two. So we're, while we're different, and that's great, and we want to celebrate the differences that we have, we also we want to kill sinful man-made distinctions. Sinful, sinful, so things that aren't sinful, yeah, they're great. We celebrate those things. But the sinful man-made distinctions that we hold on to, we want to get rid of those. We want to celebrate our differences and kill sinful man-made distinctions. I want to I quote Piper. Uh, this is what he says. But let us dwell on this. That God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body in Christ. This too was the design of the death of Christ. Think on this. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart towards all other persons who are in Christ by faith, whatever the race. And so Remedy Church, not only do we want to value the local church, but we want to strive, Lord willing, to reflect what heaven will look like as much as possible. We want to strive for that. This is exactly what Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is teaching us. He has taken Jews and Gentiles and put them together and say, you're part of a family. And as best as we can, the way that the Lord's wired our hearts, with my weird quirks I have and all the other people that will come as leadership and all you who are being the church, the best that we can, we want to strive to bring ourselves together as differently as we can be celebrate the distinctions and put to death the sinful man-made distinctions and realize that we are now, as it says, 
one new man, one new family together. I think those are the best two conclusions that we can make. So in just a minute, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper where we remember. Now, look at verse 11. Therefore, remember. So he's talking to Christians. And as he's talking to Christians, he's having to help them understand, you forget a lot. I do that. I forget all the time, right? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes from now, I'll forget. Next tomorrow, I'll forget. Like, so he's, he understands just how uh, bent towards forgetfulness we are. And so that's why he constantly tells us, remember. And as we go into the Lord's Supper, it's another opportunity every week that we do this to remember what Christ has done for us. That he gave his body and he gave his blood and therefore we are all declared holy and righteous. And we need to constantly remember this so that we don't give ourselves to sin. So that we don't give ourselves to temptation. But who we are and then we live in light of that. This is what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. There's a, there's a spiritual nourishment as we take in remembering that we are sent out nourished by the good news of the gospel. As we remember that. So as we go into the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate that. Jordan's going to come up and uh, start singing. Whenever you're ready, you can come forward and get the bread and cup and come back. I'll lead us corporately together, uh, remembering our unity. And then if you want to, of course, you can, you can sing and worship uh, through song as Jordan leads. So let me pray, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. Whenever you're ready, you can come forward. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace that you have given us. Lord, I, I confess, like all of us, that we are all uh, fickle and we don't remember like we should. And so we pray, like, the, like we're commanded here, that we would remember who we once were and that we would remember who we are, what you've done, and remember who we are now. That we're the church, we're the body, we're the family of God. And we want to remember that just as Jews and Gentiles were brought together, you brought together many people to be a part of this body. And that, Lord, I pray that we would value this local body and that we would strive to be together as much as we can. We strive to live together on mission, strive to push each other, each other on in sanctification. And Lord, I pray that we would also remember as we come to the Lord's Supper what you've done and that we would be nourished as we remember this by this good news. The gospel reconciles People of different religions and different cultures and different races. But Lord, the gospel reconciles sinful man to a holy God. So Lord, let us be overwhelmed and amazed and in awe of Christ who is willing to pay the price so that we can be reconciled to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.